Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting September 12th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, more from the September single topic issue of Scientific American devoted to food, feast, and famine. We'll talk with Paul Rayburn, author of the article, Can Fat Be Fit? Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Paul Rayburn is an award-winning science journalist. He was the science editor for the Associated Press and for Business Week magazine. And he's the author of books ranging in subject matter from space science to depression. In addition to the article on fat and fitness, Paul penned a sidebar to another article in the issue. The sidebar is called Dropping Weight and Keeping It Off. We spoke at his apartment in Manhattan. Hi, Paul. How you doing? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Th- thanks for having me to your place here. Let's, uh, let's talk about can, can fat be fit is the title of the article. So that's an obvious good question for me to start with. Can fat be fit? Well, I think, um, I, I wish the answer were yes. I'd like the answer to be yes. And uh, certainly millions of Americans would like the answer to be yes. Um, but what I found out looking at the studies and talking to people is that while it's always better to be fit than not fit, uh, the basic bottom line, we'll like, we'll go right to the, right to the core of this thing is that when you gain weight, you have adverse health effects. Now, again, it's certainly better to be riding your bike if you're 20 pounds overweight than sitting around and getting more overweight. Um, but, uh, those extra pounds are going to have consequences. Now, in the article, you talk about this study that came out a couple of years ago that caused a lot of controversy where, uh, it, it was a, a meta-analysis of a bunch of other data, and, and the resultant uh, conclusion was, wait a minute, these people who are somewhat overweight are living longer or have, or have lower mortality than the people that we think of as having normal weight. But then there was a lot of controversy and then some some other studies in response to that study. Yeah, that's right. People who were, who were just slightly overweight in that study turned out to be a little healthier by various measures. And I don't want to give anything away here, but I was pretty happy with the results of that study myself. Um, and, uh, and so were, so were millions of others, of course, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, now it may be, I tried to be very careful in the piece in Scientific American to say that nobody has strictly disproven that study. These statistical things are very tricky. And I wouldn't sit here and say that I can uh, go through all the mathematical minutiae and analyze what's going on. Far from it. I, I, I can't get into the nuts and bolts at all. It really requires a professional. And the evidence for that, of course, is that the professionals argue madly over these things about who's right and who's handling the, st- the statistics correctly. So we can't say that that study, it was... Um, that was Catherine Flegel at the at the CDC the study. Catherine Flegel at the Center for Disease Control, and uh, we can't say flatly that that study was wrong. But there are many, many, many studies. In fact, a whole history of studies that suggest the opposite, which is basically that with every pound or two, you increase your risks a little bit, and every pound or two you take off, you improve your outlook a little bit. And you have a quote from Meyer Stamfer at the uh, Harvard School of Public Health who just says that that other study is, quote, complete nonsense. And yeah, so well, he, yeah, he, <laughs> yeah, tactfully said it was complete nonsense. Yeah, that's what I mean about fighting over statistics. So these things are very subtle. And in his view, obviously, um, the study was meaningless. Now, you know, it, it's also, we just want so badly to believe that being a little overweight is, is okay. 
um, that, that we, you know, we eat these things up, so to speak, these kinds of results. Um, and of course, being a little bit overweight is far better for you than being a lot overweight. So everything's relative here. But, uh, you know, as I say, it would be nice, but there are a lot of questions about this study. A lot of questions. You, you talk about three kind of easy, well, two easy and one slightly more complex, uh, parameter to determine uh, whether you're you're getting a little out of control here, the the BMI, right? Is... BMI is a you can um, it's, it's a little bit tricky to do it in your head, but you can all over the net. You, if you go into Google and look for BMI calculator, you'll and find BMI ways. Is... It's your it's a it's a mix of your height and weight, and it's body mass body mass index, index. right? So it's just a way of figuring that you know obviously. Uh, 150 is not overweight for some, you know, is underweight for somebody who's six foot five and overweight for somebody who's five foot five. So it factors in the height and weight appropriately. So your BMI, the, the so-called healthy range for BMI is between 20 and 25 or under 25, uh, in, in that range. Um, you know, many, many Americans have crept out of that range, particularly over the last 10, 20, 30 years, we're, we're getting heavier. Um, the other factor that uh, – these come from uh, Walter Willett at uh, Harvard School of Public Health who's done a lot of this research – was that uh, you think about – for those of us who are adults now, uh, so we were adolescents at a time when adolescents weren't having the problem with obesity that they're having now. So the assumption is that when we were adolescents, we were probably about at our correct weight. So think about what you weighed at age 20, and that's probably something like your ultimate goal of where you might – um, want to try to get to. And by the same token, if you can remember what your belt size was at age 20, um, that's probably what you want to get back to. I still now, have those belts. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they're aging nicely. Well, that's because, that's because you're still the same as you were, the same size you were at 20. Well, I'm, I'm, they're in the closet <laughs> waiting to get used again. Yeah, that's yeah. right. We're, we're all on that road. So, um, so th- those are now, I, I would have to say in, in, certainly in my case, the idea that I would ever get back to what I weighed, at 20 seems impossible and, and, uh, and you wouldn't catch me betting a lot of money that I'll ever do it. Um, but you know, I would like to get closer like a lot of people and, um, you know, and it gives, it gives you something of a goal. What was also interesting about, uh, Walter Willett is that, you know, I think many people, if you say the, the normal range for BMI is between 20 and 25 and people get to, you know, 24.9 and they exhale, you know, I've, I've got where I need to be. I'm in the, in the normal or healthy range. Um, and so, um, I'm okay, but there's quite a difference within that range. And that is to say, if you had a BMI of 20, which is right at the bottom of the so-called normal range and you rose to 24.9, which is still in the normal range, you would quadruple, um, your risks of diabetes, your risk of diabetes. So that's all within the normal range. Now that's from, that's from a very, very small risk of diabetes to a, to a slightly sure. less small right. risk. Still a small but risk. That's but that's right. But it reinforces the point that he makes and that a lot of research has, has made, which is that, you know, the more you lose, the better off you are. Even if you're in the so-called normal range, if you can knock off a few more pounds, um, that's a good thing too. Now, I should say, uh, you know, for some small portion of our listeners, I think it's always important to, to remember this. There are people who have eating disorders and problems, and no matter how, I mean, you can see them on the streets here in New York City, uh, people who are clearly way below normal weight, way below uh, where they should be. And so we want to exercise a little bit of caution. You don't want to lose weight 
endlessly to the point where you're, you, you look like a stick figure. That, that's not healthy either. There is a point where it becomes very dangerous. In fact, people die from anorexia. Um, so, um, so within, you know, within reasonable ranges, the more you lose, the better off you are, but you don't want to make yourself ill by being really excessive about it. Let's talk about BMI just for a moment. I, I realize that, uh, for most people, it's probably a reasonable kind of figure to deal with. But for example, a lot of professional athletes, world class athletes who are, you know, 4% body fat people, their BMIs would have you think that they're obese. You know, you look at one of these NFL running backs who's 5'8, 210 pounds, but it's solid muscle. Right. You know, I realize that doesn't apply to most people, but isn't, doesn't the right. BMI break down under those kind of extremes? Yeah. The, yeah. Under the extremes, it does. In, in fact, the BMI does not take a kind of percent, percent of body fat that you're, you're carrying a percent of your weight that's body fat. And that's true. And the reason is that elite athletes, you know, in, in many sports develop so much, uh, muscle mass, um, that that throws it off. That's not going to be an issue for most of us, but it, it does come up sometimes in these discussions about whether, overweight people can be fit. And it's easy enough. You can, you know, a doctor can certainly measure your um, body fat uh, mass. There are gadgets now that you can buy relatively inexpensively. Some bathroom scales will me- measure your uh, percentage of body fat, at least to an uh, approximation. So if you really think you're in that category, if you really exercise intensely or play sports, you know, very actively, very regularly, um, you know, there are a few people who might be in that category and they might want to check that out because again, you know, you don't want to be losing, you don't want to lose muscle mass. Muscle is good. You want to lose fat. That's the, that's the idea. I think for most of us, um, you know, we can stand in front of a mirror and we can tell what's fat and what's muscle. Um, but certainly at the extremes, um, y- you know, it, it does break down. Yeah, if, if, if when you buckle your pants, the stuff moves around <laughs> yeah, a lot. Yeah, that's, that's not muscle. <laughs> that's right? not muscle. Speaking of elite athletes, there's, there's a photograph accompanying the article, Can Fat Be Fit? I know you didn't have anything to do with choosing the photograph. Our art department did. But it shows this, this I mean, this guy is big. And husky. He's, he's, husky. <laughs> yeah, he, he's shopping in the husky department. Right. And he is riding a bicycle and it's an example of the fact and i've seen this on uh on organized bike rides you will see some really big people on bicycles and they can do a hundred mile ride it's not like a marathon you you will not see somebody a hundred pounds overweight completing a marathon under ordinary conditions but you will see somebody carrying an extra hundred pounds doing a hundred mile bike ride occasionally now what's what's great in this photograph for me is this guy is riding the bike and he's got these incredibly expensive wheels on the bike. They're these spokeless wheels, carbon fiber, I think. I'm not sure. One thing I, you know, this isn't, this isn't a question of fat and fitness. This is more of a question of fat and performance. But I can guarantee this guy that if he loses 15 pounds, He'll, he'll make up much more time than he will spend in all that money on the fancy wheels. Yeah. Well, what's, what's easier to do? Uh, spend a thousand dollars on fancy wheels or lose 15 pounds? You know, sadly, um, I mean, this is a, an area we could get into too. You know, uh, losing weight is not easy. And, uh, it, it, for a lot of people, it's going to be a lot easier to earn a thousand dollars and, uh, and buy some wheels than it is going to be to lose that 15 pounds. Well, you just, you just gave us a natural segue into the other piece that you have in the magazine. You have the sidebar in, in the nestle piece in the magazine. We have uh, an article 
by Marion Nestle called Eating Made Simple, and your sidebar is about dieting. It's called Dropping Weight and Keeping It Off. And, uh, let me see if this, if, if this is the, uh, the quick summary. All diets work. No diets work. <laughs> All diets work short term if you're motivated and follow them. No diets work long term. Almost right. Almost right. Um, yeah, that's, that's true. The, it was an interesting uh, study uh, done recently um, in the spring that I used to lead off the piece out of Stanford. And they looked at the zone diet, the Atkins diet. They looked at a, uh, at the, at the Ornish diet. Um, that's a heart healthy diet. Uh, Ornish right? diet is a very low fat diet. The Atkins and the zone are, are, uh, more, um, high protein diets. And then they looked at a sort of government program, which is sort of the standard, you know, uh, uh, keep your fat low, low calorie and so forth standard diet that's typically recommended. And, um, you know, most of the headlines at the time said, uh, you know, Atkins beats the standard diet, you know, because the Atkins people lost a, a smidgen. I, that's a scientific term, a smidgen more than, um, than the people on the, on the other diets. But in fact, the author of the study who I talked to said the interesting point is people lost weight on all of these diets during the course of the study, you know, in the five to 10 pound range, modest weight loss, which does have health effects and is worth doing. But the problem, this study didn't go on to follow them longer, but many, many studies have shown that people do not maintain these kinds of um, uh, weight weight losses that they get in diets. So you you join Weight Watchers or you go to whatever program you like or you buy a book and whatever the diet is, you start paying attention to what you eat. And over the first couple, two, three months, you're going to lose five or 10 pounds. It might take five or six months, but you're going to lose some weight. You probably eat healthier, whichever diet it is you're following, and you'll be on the road to uh, to better things. And then for a variety of reasons that aren't entirely understood, uh, people uh, can't keep that up and and gain the weight back. Now, some of the, you know, the, the, the standard advice for this is, you know, don't don't use the, you know, the, the 15 grapefruits a day diet is not going to do it because you can't eat that for the rest of your life. You'll start to grow a thick skin and turn into a citrus fruit before you know it. But if, you know, so the standard advice is follow a good, you know, reasonably low fat, low calorie diet. Stay away from the, you know, stay, you know, reach for the fruit, not the cupcake. And, then, you know, you don't have to you don't have to put a lot of thought into this to figure out what's the right thing to do. And then, you know, if you get in the habit of having, you know, an apple after dinner instead of a piece of apple pie, you know, you're going to do better. And that's something you can probably continue because an apple's a tasty thing. There's nothing extreme about it. It's good. You just have to develop a, a taste for that rather than the sweets. Um, but even that advice for most people doesn't seem to work. So it's a it's a bit of a quandary. It's always instant gratification versus long-term gratification, I think. I think that's it. And, and the, you know, the health benefits when, if you lose, you know, for those, um, people listening or reading the magazine who've, who've lost 10 or 15 or 20 pounds, people begin to feel better. They feel lighter on their feet. They feel they can walk more easily. They don't lose their breath going upstairs and so forth. So you, you, you know, you get a bit of a benefit. If you lose five pounds, you probably don't feel a whole lot different. Um, and, and let's be honest here. When we look in the mirror, the vanity factor is a factor too. And, uh, people want to, you know, if, 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 if looking trim and looking fit helps people actually become fit, I'm all for vanity. Mm -hmm, I, you mm -hmm. know, if that's a motivator, but you know, losing five pounds isn't going to give you, you know, the, you know it's not going to put you on the cover of men's health. Can I mention a competing magazine or should no. I? No, no. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, losing a few pounds isn't going to vastly improve the way you look, but, um, 
you, you know, you have to lose a, a substantial amount of weight. So I, I think that may be, uh, this is my own amateur psychologizing here, but that may be the part of the problem too, is that you, you know, as you say, you don't get instant, uh, benefits. Although, you know, many people when they begin a diet, um, you know, uh, say they feel much better within the first weeks or a month or two. I will tell you as a cyclist, if I drop five pounds, which I have done many times, <laughs> If I drop five pounds, I will feel it climbing hills on the on the on bicycle. the bike. But yeah. can you, you? But you don't feel it walking to work in the morning, or no, uh, no. Yeah. But but when, under uh, under, under under duress, yeah, yeah, under yeah. Duress, yeah. That's right. I can tell it's just much easier to. And if you lose another five, it's just that much easier right. again. Right. Yeah. Which again, you know, that's another kind of secondary benefit of exercise. Not only does the cycling help you. Uh, keeping the excellent physical shape that you're in, but, uh, the, um, but you know, yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. It's radio. We can say anything. Right, right. Uh, see, um, you know, it uh, keeps you in good shape, but because you notice if you've had a big meal or a bad week on vacation that it's a little tougher getting up those hills, that gives you a little added incentive to yeah, drop that extra absolutely. few pounds. So the, uh, the, the kind of underwhelming but rock solid uh, conclusion based on all these diet studies is, and I, you know, I wish I could tell everybody differently, but you, you mentioned it in the article. It's eat moderately and get exercise. That's the deal. That's the deal. Yeah. And after, after extensive research and reporting, um, we come back to that old message, which is exactly, um, what I said in the piece that, um, it's simple. We, we all know how to do it. Really. You don't need a lot of books and programs and things. To figure out how to do this, as I said, the apple rather than the apple pie, um, we'll do it. We'll do it for most of us, but it's sticking with it that's important. And you know, and 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 exercise. I think exercise is often overlooked by people on diets. I think uh, very concerned about what they're putting in and not so concerned about what they're what they're burning off. But exercise, uh, you know, makes it easier. If you don't, as somebody, as somebody told me, if you don't exercise, then your diet has to be perfect. Right. If you exercise, you give yourself a little leeway to have a bad night now and then, and you go out, you know, for your run or your cycle or your walk the next morning, and and you get back on track. So, yeah. um, and it can be as simple as a walk. Just go out for a walk, a walk to get started. That's right. That's right. Doesn't have to be a long time. You know, if you don't walk at all, walk for ten or fifteen minutes. If you walk for fifteen minutes, walk for twenty or thirty minutes. Whatever it is, notch it up a bit. And you know, a lot of people who are not natural exercisers or natural athletes. Um, find that they begin to like the exercise and enjoy it and look forward to it. A walk in the morning for a half an hour can be a nice way to sort of settle your mind before you get into the office and face the chaos. Paul, thanks a lot. Sure, Steve. Paul Rayburn's article, Can Fat Be Fit?, is available free on our website, www.siam.com, and so is Marion Nessel's Eating Made Simple, which includes Paul's sidebar, Dropping Weight and Keeping It Off. And for more on Paul, check out his website, www.paulrayburn.com, that's spelled P-A-U-L-R-A-E. B-U-R-N. And by the way, in a study of over 300,000 people that was published on September 10th, researchers found that for every five units that a person's BMI increased, the risk of heart disease went up 29%. And if they took blood pressure and cholesterol levels out of the measurements, the risk of heart disease still went up 16%, just based on the BMI increase. We'll be right back. This is Paul, and I'm a fan of this podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. I use Audible when I'm planning a road trip. 
with over 35,000 titles, including Einstein by Walter Isaacson, or A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson, there are lots of books to choose from. But don't wait to go on a trip. Log on to www.audible.com slash science talk and get a free audiobook. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. A man who enjoyed two bags of microwave popcorn a day for a decade was diagnosed with a condition called popcorn worker's lung, which includes scarring of the lung. Story two. Researchers are making great strides in improving the surfaces of the insides of food containers to make it easier for you to get out the last dollops of, for example, ketchup or mayonnaise. Story three. Rabies has been almost totally eliminated worldwide. And story four. The mysterious disappearance of huge numbers of honeybee colonies has been linked to a viral infection. Time's up. Story one is true. A 53-year-old Colorado man came down with popcorn worker's lung from inhaling diacetyl, the compound used to give the popcorn that butter flavor. The lung's air sacs get inflamed and scarred. The guy's home had levels of diacetyl similar to those found in popcorn factories. The good news is that the case of a consumer getting the condition has apparently convinced some popcorn makers to stop using the chemical, which for years has been afflicting workers at popcorn factories and in other industries using diacetyl. Story two is true. New coatings should make it easier to get more ketchup or mayonnaise out of the container. Sounds silly, but up to a fifth of some of the products you pay for get thrown out or washed away because the stuff sticks to the inside of the jar, and that makes recycling harder too. But German researchers have developed a technique for applying thin films less than 20 nanometers thick to the inner surfaces of containers to make those surfaces more slippery. Examples of the new process will be presented at the International Trade Fair for Plastics and Rubber in Düsseldorf the last week of October. And story four is true. Researchers trying to pin down the cause of the honeybee die-off that has decimated bee populations for the last year have found a connection to a virus. They did genetic analysis of healthy and diseased bee colonies and found evidence for the presence of a rare virus called Israeli acute paralysis virus. It's not definitive proof that the virus is causing the die-off, but it's the first big break in the case. For more, check out J.R. Minkle's September 7th article on our website called "Mysterious Honeybee Disappearance Linked to Rare Virus." All of which means that story three about rabies being almost totally eliminated around the world is totally bogus because 55,000 people still die annually from rabies. However, canine rabies, the form of the disease that can be transmitted from dog to dog directly, has indeed been wiped out in the U.S. according to an announcement last week by the CDC. Unfortunately, dogs can still acquire rabies from other mammals such as bats, raccoons, and skunks. And dogs, cats, and cattle are still the domesticated animals that are most likely to get the disease. For more, check out the September seventh episode of the Daily Siam Podcast, Sixty Second Science.
Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Check out numerous features at our website, including the blog, Ask the Experts, and the latest science news, all at www.siam.com. And you can write to us at podcast.siam.com. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank <laughs> you.